All right, here we go. Hi, everyone. This is Achuta Bhava from Nightlight Astrology. And today we are going to take a look at the new moon in Capricorn and a few points of meditation for this moon cycle ahead, which really features the culmination of our Venus retrograde cycle, which will be finishing as the moon cycle is finishing this month. So that's what we're going to be taking a look at today. Uh, I'd love to hear where people are coming in from. Do a little roll call in the chat box. I'm doing a live stream today. It's the first first content of the new year. Happy new year, everybody. I hope that you guys had a great holiday season and a happy new year. Um, I'm really excited for a new year of content. I have to thank everybody for helping me finish strong with the Kickstarter. We finished on New Year's Day with 1,607 backers, which was about 250 or so more than we did last year. So we not only met our goal, but we topped it considerably. So deep thank you all for uh, your support. I feel like I have the best audience. I really enjoy you guys. I hope that you enjoy the content that I create in the year ahead. Um, and uh, um, one small announcement, which is that if you donated and are receiving a reward, I will be emailing everybody today and tomorrow to tell you about how you will receive your reward and when you will receive it. So you'll receive an email through Kickstarter with that explanation. I've been getting a bunch of emails from people asking. I didn't send it out over the weekend, just kind of wanted to chill out. So uh, today I'll be sending those out and uh, you'll get instructions on how all of that works. Um, but anyway, a huge thank you to everybody who pitched in. I really deeply appreciate your support. Okay, so we're, we are now um, going to look at this first moon cycle of 2022. Um, the other thing I should let you guys know is that um, I will be doing Bhakti Wednesday this week, but otherwise the rest of this week I am taking off from content creation. I'm taking this, the first four days, the rest of the four days of the week, I am going to be um, fulfilling hundreds of uh, recordings that I have to make. Um, so I uh, just taking the first week to kind of reset a little bit. And so uh, you'll have Bhakti Wednesday. This Wednesday, you'll get Bhakti Wednesday. Otherwise, you won't have content Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and I'll be back on Monday next week. And then it's game on. But I wanted to come on today to share an initial reflection for the new year on this new moon cycle. And we'll get really, we'll be diving into that today. And then we'll sort of reset and I'll be back fully next week. But again, there will be a Bhakti Wednesday talk this week as well. Okay, so here is the real time. I'm going to put the real time clock up on the screen. And um, here we go. So uh, you can see on the screen here, oops, I have gone backward in time. I am, here we are. So the new moon yesterday came through in the sign of Capricorn. Let's go back just one day. You can see here's the moon and sun coming together on Sunday, January 2nd. And so this is the start of a moon of a new moon cycle in Capricorn that features the co-presence of Venus and Pluto with Venus still retrograde. And what I want to show you is just why I think this moon cycle is so Venusian in nature. What, what makes this moon cycle really all about Venus's continued retrograde and completion of her retrograde cycle? Let me just map that out first, then we're going to go into sort of a meditation on some of the key features of what I see as um, the uh, finale of Venus's retrograde. So um, from this standpoint, let's move forward to about the first quarter moon. When the first quarter moon starts coming through, there's a couple of things that are happening. 
Here you can see the first quarter moon is in Aries. This is going to be January 8th into the 9th. Key to the early part of this moon cycle are a few things. One, I want you to notice what's happening with Mars and Neptune. Mars is in Sagittarius, starting to square Neptune and Pisces. Those are Jupiter's signs, with Jupiter now well-dignified in its own home sign of Pisces. So you have a very fiery, expansive energy that's coming through around the first quarter. It feels kind of like a prophet, a holy roller, a moment of conviction, a moment of emotional, passionate intensity. And the moon is in Aries, the sign of Mars at the exact same time of the first quarter moon. And what's also unique about this is Venus is going through her Kazemi. So she's at the heart of the sun, uh, combust, and then hits the heart of the sun moment and becomes greatly empowered as Venus is now resetting and is going to start emerging on the other side of the sun into her morning star position. So Venusian things are becoming empowered at the exact same moment that you have this very passionate, charismatic Mars-Neptune square at the same time that there's a first quarter moon action-oriented in the sign of Aries, Mars's sign. So I get the feeling that whatever's happening with Venus, she's about to hit her breakthrough moment around the first quarter moon. The breakthrough meaning whatever this cycle has been about so far, the rebirth is about to occur. And that's usually an energizing, healing, reviving, resuscitating kind of energy. You start feeling a lot better again in that area of life that Venus retrograde has maybe been putting you in the soup and making you do the hard work. Okay. And if we take it forward a little bit more, the rest of the moon cycle is also really interesting. I want you to notice what's happening right around the full moon. Around the full moon, here's the moon in Cancer. At the same time, that the sun is conjoining Pluto and Venus is coming into a trine through her retrograde with Uranus, who's stationing to turn direct. Feels like another kind of breakthrough moment. By breakthrough, I mean a moment where there is catharsis, significant catharsis. So each of the moon cycle moments this month, for new moon, first quarter, uh, and um, the full moon so far, uh, they all feature important moments of breakthrough right on the new moon you've got jupiter having just moved into uh pisces and venus just separating from pluto around the first quarter you get mars neptune square and you get this kind of um moment of catharsis with venus kazemi the full moon you get the moon opposite pluto with the sun conjoined pluto and venus retrograding into a trine with uranus so both are very dynamic and change oriented meaning rapid sudden swift changes. And it feels to me like these are the, the moments where whatever Venus retrograde has been working on, the, the, the actual substantive changes or the light bulbs going off start to appear and you know, okay, you know, the plot or circumstances are, are changing rapidly, or I'm changing rapidly or whatever the case might be. But it's a cycle where, you know, the early stages of this Venus retrograde, Venus is moving slow and it's sort of ponderous and heavy and it's uh, it's conjoined with Pluto. It's just, it's deep and it's hard and it's intense and you're so in it that you may not really be able to even see what's going on. These are the moments where you probably can see what's going on and the changes are being affected um, more swiftly. If you go to the last quarter moon, same thing. Last quarter moon comes through around the, um, let's see here, the, there we go, right around the 25th. And right around the 25th, what's happening? Well, you have another very Uranian-looking moment. Here's the moon at first quarter hitting Uranus as the sun is starting to engage with Uranus at the exact same time. 
very dynamic moment. And what's happening right around the, the last quarter moon, Venus is stationing to turn direct. So just within days after that last quarter moon, Venus is slowing down tremendously and stopping, and then Venus is going to turn direct. And that's with very within a very close trine to Uranus. So again, the feeling of breakthrough in the air. Then you go forward all the way to the new moon. And at the time of the new moon, what's happening? Well, Venus has, is now starting to move forward again. It's moving forward as it's still, whoops, giant diamond. Uh, as Venus is trying to Uranus still, so slowly starting to move forward. And now you have a new moon that's also going to be squaring Uranus. So again, the feeling of breakthrough. So to me, I'm very optimistic about this month leading us to the kinds of breakthroughs that we may not have been seeing early on because of the kind of slow, heavy, dense, and deep um, quality of Venus-Pluto that was there at the beginning of the cycle when not only Venus was conjoined with Pluto, but Venus was barely moving. So I think the potential for a lot of dynamism in this moon cycle, the feeling of a lot of catharsis and um, sort of release of that, the energy that gets stagnant or the, the muck that you're in when some heavy transit is moving through and then things start to shift really rapidly. Remember, Saturn and Uranus are also separating. Jupiter's now in a better place. And this first moon cycle of the year really starts moving things quickly. Uh, so I'm very optimistic about it overall. I want to talk today about what it might mean that Venus is um, going through the final stages of her retrograde and just a few more meditative thoughts on Venus's retrograde for us today, given that this really is, to me, at the core of, of the lunar cycle of the, of the beginning of the year here. Let me see before I dive in where you guys are coming from. Chico, California, Minnesota. Nice. I'm glad there's a Minnesotan here. Jersey, New Hampshire, New York, Brazil, Portland, Oregon, on, on Oregon, Ontario, Northern California, Saginaw. Nice. Mm, Maryland. Let's see, Jersey, Toronto, Sweden, Mendocino, Sicily, Tucson, Vancouver. Amazing. So good to have you guys here. I am so happy for the start of a new year, a new year of content. I have a lot of inspiration coming into this new year. Venus has been retrograde in my own ninth house, the place of philosophy, belief, religion. And I've just been... Um, re-reading re a lot of James Hillman material. And you guys have heard me utilizing a lot of James Hillman's work. And I have another passage I'm going to read from him today, but also a short passage from a, um, a short passage from a summary study of a famous Bhakti Yoga philosophical text called The Nectar of Devotion. Uh, this is by a Swami who is basically unpacking this uh, text and offering commentary and the text is one that has a lot to do with, uh, you know, bhakti in some ways could be called the yoga of emotion. And so this is a text that really is a philo philosophical text about different states of emotion and how they play into spiritual life. There's a place for all emotions in bhakti. So um, there's a way of understanding all emotions as divine in nature, divine in origin. I'm going to talk about that a little bit today, as well as an essay from James Hillman on uh, art therapy. Uh, when I was first finished with graduate school and I, when I moved to New York City in the hopes of getting more involved in all of the spiritual things that were becoming very important to me at the time, but for a while, I worked as an art and activities therapist um, 
in a, in a, as a social worker, an art and activities therapist, um, and um, saw firsthand, and not that I had any real training either, um, but basically what I did with the residents I served was to come up with meaningful activities to, um, you know, that were conducive to working with complicated, regularly complicated and very difficult or challenging mental and emotional states. Most of it was just like, you know, I remember one thing that we did a lot was we took cameras, disposable cameras, and we went out into New York City, walking around and would go to interesting places and, you know, have everyone take interesting pictures, and then we would come back and we'd make collages out of them and stuff like that. And there's all sorts of stuff that I came up with or that, um, you know, that were pretty common activities that the residents I worked with were used to, you know, and uh, I learned a lot from that. And some of that is reflected in what I have to say today, as well as in this essay on art therapy um, by James Hillman that I'm going to read from. But let's start at the beginning. Why am I thinking about art, working with emotions, art therapy, things like that? One of the reasons has to do with Venus's kind of age old relationship with Saturn. Venus is in Saturn's sign. Venus is the goddess of the arts, of sensuality, of the five senses, the pleasure, and also of, of beauty. Um, and Venus is rules Libra where Saturn is also exalted. So there's an old relationship between Venus and Saturn archetypally, philosophically, uh, and it, I think it's important to go back to the roots of that because we have Venus retrograde and Saturn sign. And you guys have heard me say a few things about this already, but I want to say a few more today um, because I think that the kinds of breakthroughs we're going to have in this lunar cycle that I outlined in the moon cycle at the beginning of this video, the kinds of breakthroughs are probably those that are common to the philosophical roots of Venus's relationship with Saturn. Um, so remember a few things. Let me pull up my notes here, make sure I'm not going off, off course. So um, remember that Venus, let's broadly talk about Venus's significations. Philosophically, Venus represents desire insofar as we have desire for pleasant things, pleasant, pleasing environments, people, tastes, touches, smells, which could also be sexual in nature, but it could be your desire to see good art or to watch, um, you know, a good performance at a theater or to dance or to um, have the right color scheme in your wardrobe or in your office. Me, you know, I'm a Taurus rising. So my office color, you know, like I just, it was a long slow decision for me to choose my purple. <laughs> I love that kind of stuff. So Venus is like that though. It's like, what do you love? What do you, what makes you, um, the environment feel good around you? Uh, what is desirable? What is pleasing? You know, this is Venus. So we say Venus is about relationships, but the reason we're saying that is because Venus is related to the state of, um, harmonious connection, not just with people, but with the world. Isn't there, there's nothing more offensive to me than um, going into buildings that feel very bare and uncared for aesthetically. Like I find, you know, um, 
certain kinds of architecture uh, that that is very plain or cookie cutter, kind of offensive. <laughs> I think other people feel the same way. I was recently with a friend and you know, we were driving through a neighborhood and, and I won't go into it too much, but the neighborhood was one of those neighborhoods where all the houses look um, identical to each other, like literally identical. And he, and he goes, I'm just, you know, I'm just like offended by, and we're just like offended by this. So, and of course we were sort of joking and sort of being snobbish. Um, but Venus is like that. Venus is, is wants to see a well-arranged balance of differing different things that come together harmoniously you say one of the beatles icons like who who did the beatles like as a band and one of their favorites was brian wilson and the beach boys and i remember i think it was george harrison who once said that he liked them so much because they took all sorts of different sounds and made just layers of and layers of harmony and it was just so beautiful um i love the beach boys by the way one of my favorite bands of all time but um, so Venus is like that. Venus is the, the need that we have in the psyche for harmony. There's discordancy too, like discordancy exists. It's a state. Some ways we can't know harmony without discordancy. Uh, but the, we have strife and we have discord with Mars, you know, and so Venus is that state of harmony. Now, um, what's the relationship with Saturn? Well, um, on the negative side of things, Saturn was said to be the ruler of feigned appearances. The ruler of feigned appearances. To feign means to simulate an action or emotion. It has the connotation of pretending, imitating, or pretension. It has a root etymological meaning, which means to touch with the intention to alter something from its original. And almost like a counterfeit piece of art. And in San it has actually a Sanskrit roots, the word feign, to the idea of something that is formed as in a body, a human body, a figure or a shape that represents something, but isn't the thing, but it represents it. This is a Sanskrit idea related also to the body itself. There is a way in yoga philosophy in which we are each a feigned appearance, right? Our body is somehow the shape or mold of uh, a subtle body, um, something like that. Anyway, In 1999, September 17th, 1999, I want to take you guys back in time here. Check this out. Let's go back to September 17th, 1999. That was what I had up on the screen at first, and I just forgot. Let's go all the way back to September of 1999. So on the 17th, I want to show you just something really kind of neat. In 1999, while Venus was in a square with Saturn in Taurus, Saturn was in Venus's sign, and Venus was in a square with Saturn. And by the way, 
this square with Saturn came September 11th, Venus had turned direct. So September 11th, 1999, September 10th, it turns direct. A week later, September 17th, right? Whoops, I got it right here. September 17th. One of my favorite movies came out. So this is just after a Venus retrograde. Well, Saturn is in Venus's sign and Venus is squaring Saturn. The movie American Beauty came out. I don't know if you guys remember this movie. Um, this was the cover. You may remember it. Let's see if I can just pop this up on the screen. I just did an image search. The cover, the iconic cover. I don't know if you guys remember this one in particular. You guys remember this? Person, their stomach and the rose over the hand. I don't know if you guys. And it had Kevin Spacey. He was the lead. Um, and I'm trying to remember the name of the girl. I think it was Thora Birch. Thora Birch, I think. And I'm trying to remember the name of the next door neighbor boy. Can't remember his, his name either, but it was a fantastic movie. I want to read you some quotes from that movie that ring, just ring out with the Saturn Venus dynamic. As I think it was his wife, who was played by Annette Benning, if I remember correctly, um, she is in the car driving, listening to like pump yourself up self-help talk. In order to be successful, the voice on her tape says, one must project an image of success at all times. So this is Venus Saturn to a T. Venus knows what is pretty, what is beautiful, what is harmonious, but Saturn is willing to feign its appearance out of duty. It's like going to a job interview. You know exactly what to say, how to look and, and feel good or appealing to the person who's interviewing you. If life is an interview, Venus Saturn is a great ally, right? If you need to be responsible at a large corporation dealing with people's needs in a human resource department, you have to do so with care and concern, but political tact, Venus Saturn might be your friend or an exalted Venus might be your friend or a well-placed Saturn and Taurus might be your friend. This is one of my favorite scenes. I'm just going to read it to you. <laughs> so Kevin Spacey gets to a point where he basically realizes that his feigned appearance of, of a life can't exist anymore. He just can't go on doing it. Lester Burnham, Janie, today I quit my job, and then I told my boss to go fuck himself, and then I blackmailed him for almost $60,000, past the asparagus. Carolyn Burnham, your father seems to think this kind of behavior is something to be proud of. Lester Burnham, and your mother seems to prefer that I go through life like a fucking prisoner while she keeps my dick in a mason jar under the sink. <laughs> Carolyn Burnham, how dare you speak to me that way in front of her? And I marvel that you can be so contemptuous of me on the same day that you lose your job. Lester, lose it? I didn't lose it. It's not like, whoops, where'd my job go? I quit. Someone pass the asparagus, please. <laughs> oh my gosh. If you haven't seen the movie, go, you, should, you should see it if you want a good one for understanding the Venus-Saturn dynamic. But if you have seen it, you know how hilarious that scene is. 
Kevin Spacey. <clears throat> for 14 years, I've been a whore for the advertising industry. The only way I could save myself now is if I start firebombing. So he says, look at me jerking off in the shower. This will be the high point of my day. It's all downhill from here. And again, I'm just trying to read some funny quotes from the movie that capture the spirit of Venus Saturn at its worst. One big act, one big feigned appearance, you know, one big life is a job interview. Uh, and secretly, when you're not feigning the appearance of whatever it is that you're feigning in any area of life, you know, um, there's something in the background that it, it starts to, something starts getting sick right? Something, something goes wrong. And then, you know, here comes the midlife crisis. That's why I love the title of this American beauty, where so much of our culture is surrounded by advertising images of what, what beauty, what satisfaction, what comfort, what Venus is supposed to look like, whether it's your body or your food or what happiness looks like. A lot of it is sold to us. And I'm not trying to get on a soapbox here. I just think that's a basic truth. And I think everyone knows that. I'm, I don't, I'm, preaching to the choir. Everybody knows that. We can forget though, that even if you're aware of that fact, so much of your day can become a feigned appearance. So much of your day can become about something, you know, that, that should be beautiful, but you're acting, you're, you're faking it. At some point, there's two hours left in your workday and you've tried to bring the best that you can to the table <laughs> And you got two hours left. You got nothing left. You're faking your way through those last two hours. There's a good portion of every day that's like that for us. Not only is it normal and human, and I'm not trying to say that it's some great sin. It's very common. It's very mundane that we feign our way through things and try to push out an image of some kind. It's just so human. In fact, the word pretension means to stretch out in front of. You can imagine okay, I'm, I'm going to, I, I don't feel good right now. I don't want to sit down in this last two hours of my job, but I'm going to like, going to get out in front of that and sort of stretch out an image, you know, so that people don't see I'm done. I'm exhausted. As the movie goes on and Kevin Spacey sort of has his midlife crisis and uh, his um, sort of his breakthrough one of the things he, that is said is this. He says, that's the day I realized that there was this entire life behind things and this incredibly benevolent force that wanted me to know that there was no reason to be afraid ever. And this is also in tandem with what's happening with a neighbor boy who um, has this poetic eye for beauty that he likes to capture with his camera. And he's sort of having a relationship with Kevin Spacey's daughter. And if you've seen the movie, it's he's a key part of how Kevin Spacey starts becoming aware of these little beautiful things that he's lost touch with because of how much of his life he's had to live as a feigned appearance. In order to be successful, one must project an image of success at all times. He says something Later in the movie, he says, I can't feel anything but gratitude for every single moment of my stupid little life. There's a couple of other quotes that are really beautiful. 
It's hard to stay mad when there's so much beauty in the world. Sometimes I feel like I'm seeing it all at once and it's too much. My heart fills up like a balloon that's about to burst. Contrast that with the very first line of the movie. My name is Lester Burnham. This is my neighborhood. This is my street. This is my life. I am 42 years old. In less than a year, I will be dead. Of course, I don't know that yet. And in a way, I am dead already. Yeah. The next door neighbor says, it's like God's looking right at you just for a second. And if you're careful, you can look right back. And Jane says to Ricky, and what do you see? And Ricky says, beauty. So I wanted to share with you guys a few quotes from that movie. Again, that movie was released just as Venus turned direct in a square with Saturn, who was in Taurus, in Venus's sign. So the Venus-Saturn dynamic, uh, it's natural for us to go seeking for Venus in every day in the small cracks of life. Venus is always there. Um, it is also very normal for us because of the mundane facts of life. We produce waste. We have to take care of, take out trash, go to the bathroom. You got to go to sleep. You got to pay bills. You got to get groceries. You got to prepare food. There's a lot of elements of our daily life. Change diapers if you have kids. There's a lot of elements of our daily lives that are very mundane, you know? And it's easy to lose track of Venus. It's easy to lose track of making even the most mundane things beautiful, attractive, pleasing, funny, desirable. We can lose that little grace that makes all of the simple things in life sparkle. It's really easy to lose it. And when we lose it, we don't want to lose it. We don't want to lose, at least we don't want to lose the appearance of being in touch with it. And so it's very easy to start you know, think of Instagram filters, think of the way that we project our lives in social media. You know, we went to the zoo the other day and I was walking around and I realized with my daughter, I realized that people were more concerned with taking a picture of being at the zoo than they were at being at the zoo. And I don't think I'd ever seen it quite like that before. I've seen people taking pictures at the zoo, but it was pronounced like everyone was taking pictures for social media like probably I saw like a hundred people doing this. They were, and you know, maybe I'm just blowing that out of proportion. Maybe they did enjoy their day at the zoo, but you get the point. You get the feeling when you're walking around that people are trying to capture the right image of life, you know, and they, but we can lose touch with what it feels like to actually uh, be in it. Um, when I reflect on, you know, my own day, daily life and what bhakti brings to my daily life. If I had to summarize it, it would be just that. It's an emphasis on making sure that if it's a mind state, a mood state, an emotional state, small things in my surroundings, that there's an emphasis on the practice of caring and making things beautiful, like goddess care, so that the experience is one uh, that, you know, the, the beauty is, the beauty is uh, sparkling around us. For me, as you guys know, I've said this so many times, the planets are a way of helping me understand and see the unfolding of, of experiences around me in terms of uh, beauty and in terms of relationship. 
In fact, one really interesting thing to note um, is that the, the word cosmetic, uh, which we think of cosmetics as a Venusian thing, the word cosmetic is, shares the same root as the word cosmos, a well-arranged whole, a beautifully harmonized whole. Our lives are not that far from a state of cosmic beauty. It just requires peopling it with presences rather than feigning appearances. It requires that we um, relationalize the and and um, and care for the aesthetics of our everyday experiences. That's not easy. Like it's 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 very it's a lot easier for us to try to um, feign our way through it. So I think that this Venus retrograde cycle, broadly speaking, offers us the ability to reflect on, it's going to look and feel differently for all of us. What area of life does this appear? Maybe what whole sign house does Venus appear in, in your chart right now as it's retrograding? But can we look at our lives and just go, where is there, where is What's the feigned appearance here? For example, just I'll give I'm going to give you guys two examples from my own life in the hopes that it illustrates Venus is retrograde in my ninth house. I mentioned this earlier. I've been revisiting philosophical and psychological and artistic texts and um, been a little bit more active in watching uh, artful good art, artful films. Part of that for me is because philosophically at the outset of this, and you guys might've even heard me say this previously, I was just feeling a little dead inside. Like I'm feeling a little dry. And um, so I found myself needing to get back into a space mentally and spiritually where I felt um that I wasn't just feigning the appearance. I do my practice every day. I create my content every day. I do my meditation every day. I read sacred scriptures every day. But something was feeling just a little dead. So I needed to change things and look for Venus. Where did you go? When did I start feigning an appearance and where did you go? You know, searching out the goddess, goddess searching out God, that dynamic is very present in bhakti union. You feel connected and then separation Saturn, the ruler of separation. You feel apart from that, which you love that, which fills you up with presents beauty to you. So it's also natural to go through in some ways. We can't know what we love until we fall into pretension until we fall into the separateness and the feeling of being in some simulation you know, why is it so popular these days for people like Elon Musk or whatever people walking around being like, I think this is all a simulation. Well, first of all, it's, I always kind of, you know, I always kind of laugh, little smug laughter when I'm like, it's funny how popular the simulation idea is as the newest matrix movie is being released or whatever, considering that, you know, the Vedas, the Gnostics, the Upanishads, the, you know, different philosophical 
modalities and thousands and thousands of years old all over our planet have said something rather similar. But at any rate, we, but it's not that, oh, we live in a simulation. So let's get to the real thing. And this is all fake. And the real thing is over here. It's, it's more nuanced than that. It's about recognizing that the feeling of being in a feigned appearance, a pretension of some kind is actually the, when we recognize it, you don't recognize it for a while. And basically it's like, you're alone wandering through a forest and you're, you're pretending like you're still walking hand in hand with your lover, but your lover is gone. So it's lonely to be in the act of pretension in a feigned appearance. It's very lonely. I'm feeling a little fake. This is feeling a little hollow. That's a really good sign because that's the beginning of the call for the lover to come back. When you feel that, it's the beginning of the call for the lover to come back. Usually in our culture, as in the film American Beauty, people will initially reach for something when they feel the lover has gone, Venus is gone, I'm in a, I'm in a simulation. They will reach for a new car, a new lover, something that's going to be a simulation of Venus. And it's, usually, it's often very destructive. But what I loved about that film, American Beauty, was that they drove a wedge into the problem of pretension and middle life. And they said, that the, the film sort of said very artfully, that doesn't feel like a message, it feels like a story. That's the other thing is that, you know, the goddess only works as a teacher when the art of the story is more important than the message. The message has to somehow emanate from the artfulness of the story. Um, so that's lost on us sometimes. We, you know, it's, it's also when we live in a pretentious world, you can always tell because more and more the art will take the form of messaging rather than art that also speaks a message. And there's a, there is a difference between that in my humble opinion. Um, but at any rate, um, so in American Beauty, they drive a wedge into the middle life pretension situation and they show the hollow attempt at trying to get back that sense of beauty get back the relationship with, with the goddess, the sparkle of life through, you know, the misfires of, of middle age, midlife crisis. And then the real thing, which is the beauty that's discovered. And the famous scene that you would probably remember is that I think it's like a little bag swirling through the air that the boy catches on camera. So I want to read to you a little excerpt on pretension from the nectar of devotion it's a summary study written by a swami that i really like and um they're talking about different kind of it's like an anatomy of different emotional states one's desire to hide their real mentality is called avahita or concealment and a desire to exhibit superiority is called pride. Both of these may be classified under pretension. In a pretentious attitude, both concealment and pride are to be found. 
To concede, conceal one's real feelings, one must employ pretension. They must pretend to feel differently than they truly do. Similarly, pride, damba, involves concealing one's real status and pretending to be something greater. Thus, concealment implicitly includes pride. So it's kind of, like I said, it's like a philosophical text on different sort of emotional states, but um, one of the reasons that I think it's really important is because they're sort of like there's a gradation. On the one hand, if we're walking around simulating things, trying to make our lives look a certain way that's appealing or attractive or whatever, we can do this to ourselves unknowingly. It's not just how we present ourselves to others, it's how we can present ourselves to ourselves. But if, we, um, if we're doing that, level one is, first of all, that we're just feigning something that we don't really feel. Or we're trying to make something look a certain way that it isn't really. And okay, we all do that. We do that usually in very small ways, you know. But the next step is pride. And pride is where not only are we concealing what we feel or what we think, we're also presenting ourselves as more than what we are. So pretension can also be something that we're not just feigning a state, but there's in this famous yoga philosophy text, the second step is to think that you're better than you are or to present an image that you try to, for example, I know that for me, one of the simplest ways I do this is there's days where I'm just faking it through things because I don't feel them. Then there's days where I'm acting in a way that is greater than I am. Because not only am I not feeling it, but I want people to think that I'm a lot more than what I really feel behind the scenes. Those are two things that I think we all deal with, but there's a difference between just feigning something and then also projecting an image that's a lot more than what you feel. So those are things that Venus and Saturn can both, especially when they're combined, can be guilty of. So, interestingly enough, Venus Saturn is also allergic to pretension. You will find that Venus Saturn natives, Venus Saturn squares, or people like myself, I have Saturn in Libra. Um, but any kind of Venus Saturn combination can also be rather allergic to pretentiousness or to pretense, or some people might call it inauthenticity. And I find that really interesting. I think there's, at least this is important to say. One is that Venus Saturn can find itself allergic to pretension. Um, but sometimes that, that allergic reaction that we have to pretension or inauthenticity is a little bit of a mirror for us. Like I know that when I am irked, for example, by someone's hubris or their pride or their pretentiousness or whatever, and I'm really like, you know, I have a strong reaction 
I want to make fun of them or I want to, you know, cut them down to size somehow or whatever, that um, if I'm being 100% honest, I know that there's something of their pretension that is it's causing an allergic reaction in me because <laughs> there's something of that there in me too, you know? So Venus Saturn is also not just pretense and pretension and feigned appearances, but it's also about the allergy to feigned appearances. So there is a temptation with Venus Saturn in the pretentiousness that you'll see. And it goes like this. Just be yourself, man. <laughs> that's, the, that's the slogan. Just be authentic. Just screw the pretentiousness. Just be authentic. I'm just going to be me. And that's the same attitude captured in American Beauty and so many other midlife crisis stories that usually leads someone to, you know, maybe at the most benign level, just rip holes in their jeans, you know, <laughs> at the worst, maybe spend way too much money on a new car. Just be yourself. Screw the inauthenticity. Usually that's an overcompensation in the same way that irritation with inauthenticity is often kind of a, a, a mirror back to some of our own, our own feigned appearances, our, our own problem with feigned appearances. And these are things that are taught in this yogic uh, text. These are, these are some of the takeaways that I've been getting from reading this ancient book on yoga philosophy. I want to read you something that Hillman wrote about art therapy in an, a collection of essays called Inhuman Relations. Inhuman, like not human, inhuman. This is a, um, an essay, a short essay that he wrote called Your Emotions Are Not Yours. I wake in the night and the emotions are there. I'm afraid of the future alone. I am tormented by my incapacity to meet what is expected of me. It would be easier to be just dead. Whatever I do, wherever I turn is wrong. The night thoughts assail me. They sit on the edge of my bed and fill my head with cutting criticisms and my heart with despair. I toss and turn or lie rigidly awake, begging for release and sleep. Like black winged demons, the emotions come at night for several hours. They call it insomnia, nightmares, depression, but the clinical language only masks the face of the emotions that are visitations from another world, the underworld, reminding me of Hades. Are they asking me that I pay homage for a few hours, perhaps, to that all-important God who is invisible in the day world, whose moves are made in the dark, through the dark, who is allied with Hypnos and Thanatos, and who, if recognized, voids life of its usual programs, offering instead the strength and fullness and beauty, too, of the invisible background of all life? Psychology wants to interiorize these events and make them personal. The night terrors become that, only that. They remain humanized and do not lead to figures of another world. They are my problem for which I see my therapist or take my sleeping pills. That the black-winged demons may also be protective angels offering familiarity with a world the day world does not allow. That they have their intentions with me other than my intentions with myself that they are guests in my room and not part of me, complexes, problems, negative intuitions, rehearsals of childhood traumas, etc. There are, of course, emotions that do not arise from the world out there. There seem to be as well an invisible uncaused ground of emotions 
emotions that suddenly come upon us, states of dark purple moods, lassitude, or stony silence. These seem to spring from nowhere. They do not have the world as their reference, not even thought, memory, or dream has caused them. He says, these alterations of the psyche initiate, accompany, and signify changes in the subjective soul. These emotions without reference are what Chinese psychology calls movements of the heart or of heaven. So he says, what do we expect will happen to the patient and to the emotion when engaged in art therapy? The patient is patient because he is the recipient, the channel, shall we say victim, of the divine influxes that are never merely feeling states and effective tones, but are always as well imaginations, imaginations of behavior, imaginations of fantasy, imaginations of movement and intention and desire. The patient is patient in my narrow and rather irreverently clinical view, not because of the past, the family, the abuse, the church and education, the sexuality, the economic hardships, the afflictions of accident and disease that have brought handicaps. I do not underestimate these events, but they remain contingencies of the second order in my narrow view. Primary is the disordered imagination, the incapacity of the imagination to encompass the past and its traumas. Restrictions of imagination appear as excessive emotion, for when emotion is not held within its image, when the images have been reduced in quality, captured by collective commercialism, harnessed to exploitation, voided by rationalism, then emotion runs rampant and we have to dose it with pharmaceuticals or exercise it with therapies of release or expression. Instead, I'm suggesting that the restoration of the imagination is the fundamental cure of disordered emotions. And especially that imagination I have touched on again and again, the imagination that welcomes and give places to the powers once called gods. So to me, first of all, I find that astrology itself is like moving through life with a kind of an art therapy in my sphere all the time. There's something aesthetically pleasing about moving through the world of events and not seeing them as events, but seeing them as gods. There's an aesthetic dimension. For example, let me just give you a simple example. Last week, there was some, or two weeks ago or something, there were some, I think it was Jordanian lawmakers like brawling over a vote, an amendment or a vote or something about women's rights. Um, Venus is conjoined with Pluto as Venus is retrograde. Now I see that event and there's a polemical level, a rhetorical level, an argumentative level, an ideological level at which that event is discussed and immediately thrown up in the air. And, you know, it becomes like the, uh, what is it? The someone, I heard a friend of mine right lately who called it the Thunderdome. <laughs> you know, it's like everyone just goes after it as an, an event that's about ideas and concepts and debate and so forth. Astrology allows us, of course, to engage with the events of everyday life as though they are events existing in political narratives, cultural narratives, etc. That it also opens up the aesthetic 
which if we lose means that we lose our appreciating capacity. Without an appreciating capacity, events and concepts, good or bad in our subjective states and our relative uh, likes and dislikes all become feigned appearances. They all become Saturnine. So it's not only what's happening, what's being dismantled, what tradition or structure is being changed. It's the fact that we're talking about it like that all the time. That's not very aesthetically pleasing, especially when you do it over and over and over and over again. So Venus is also about bringing beauty and justice together. Think about Libra, Saturn and Venus together. It's about saying there's so much of life that exists in a kind of disembodied conceptual mental realm. Remember Saturn's exaltation is in the air sign of Libra. It's other domicile is the air sign of Aquarius. It's easy to live in polarizing uh, conceptual states all the time. That's why we need Venus because Venus reminds us that life is also sensual and embodied and Venus gives us that appreciating capacity. And when I look at that image, I see Venus Pluto. I literally see Venus and Hades, you know, Aphrodite and Hades, gods, figures, powers, presences, beings. And to me, that has to, that comes in front because it reminds me that the way that I relate to this image that I'm about to relate to uh, is personal and relational. And then my response becomes more organic and more creative, and it becomes more like that, that bag fluttering up in the air. It, it becomes something that is capturing me as I'm capturing it. In some state of reverence, it's seeing me as I'm seeing it, as it lives in me, as it lives in an image in the world. So at any rate, to me, this is what Hillman is talking about. In very specifically, what does life look like when we move from thinking about our mind states, our, our moods, our emotions as mine, as things to be looked at, as things to be owned and then cured or fixed, especially the negative stuff that we deal with mentally or emotionally? He says very clearly, uh, he has another book Hillman wrote just called Emotion, which is fantastic. It's earlier on in his work. It's not as poetic as a lot of his other writing, but it's very good. And he's not saying dissociate. You're not your emotions. You're just some automaton that doesn't have emotions and only complete, you know, reflects upon them objectively. That's not what we're talking about. But what we are talking about is saying, when you think that every state of mind, mood, emotion, fantasy, feeling, thought, image coming through you is you, first of all, it's very overwhelming. Uh, second of all, you're much more likely to try to attach yourself to positive images, but then the images go, they're like clouds. They just go. So the image leaves, but you try to keep holding onto that image. And what do you do? You feign an appearance. On the other hand, let's say a negative state comes in and you're getting identified with the negative state. Then you try to fix the negative state, but because you can't fix it right away, you'll, you'll do one of two things. You'll either feign an appearance while still trying to fix the thing inside or uh, you'll, the, the fix that you make will be another feigned appearance itself. This is specifically what Bhakti Yoga is teaching us about uh, when it comes to emotion and, and thought, the life of the mind and the emotional body. And the teachings are very much the same. 
Hillman says living a life of art therapy means that we take time to relate to images. We take time to relate to desires and different states creatively, which is to say we participate with them. Take a minute, for example, <clears throat> scan the news and don't scan it so much for information as much as you scan it for the presence of the gods. And then when you scan it for the presence of the gods, rather than constructing a big narrative that matches your ideology, even though it's valid and okay to have a point of view, to have you know, desire for how things go or to have a concern with justice or whatever the case might be, rather than doing that, just pause and try this exercise instead. Find the gods in the news and then just sit with them and look, find an image that captures the gods in the news and spend time with it like you're in an art gallery looking at it. It's not that one is better than the other. It's that one is far less done than the other. And because it is far less done, it becomes much easier for our life to be lived in dissociated states, which is to say states of pretension and feigned appearances because we don't engage aesthetically with the images presented to us in the world. We don't take it in and go, oh, you know, like we don't do that. Whatever your response might be, it could be discussed. It doesn't, it's not that you need to take it in. Like it's so beautiful. It's beauty is something in its philosophical state in the ancient world that goes beyond, uh, you know, the, the, the simple, um, likes and dislikes, thumbs up and thumbs down. I like this style. I don't like that style. It's not, beauty is not a petty thing. Beauty really is tantamount to an appreciating capacity. So sit and appreciate images. See how that changes your life in the next three weeks, especially if you can you know, just do a little technical work and look and say, where is Venus presenting itself right now? You should be able to notice it naturally. But if you don't, just look at the birth chart, look at the whole sign house Venus is appearing in. The topics of that house should give you a clue. And the temptation, you know, be careful of the, the temptation as antidote. I'm just going to be myself. Hmm. <laughs> because that's a pretension too. When we try to like assert some kind of just being myself, I don't care what people think. I'm just going to do me. Right. Well, that that's an, it's a feeling, maybe a feeling of disgust, resentment for being inauthentic or something that bubbles up in us. Then we try to do something with it and stake ourselves down on it. And, 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 and it passes just as quickly as a cloud all over again. Then we're staked down with, you know, like I was in the eighth grade with flannel and ripped up jeans and a Nirvana t-shirt. You know what I mean? <laughs> so <laughs> there's me. <laughs> oh, you just caught me. It's my hatred of pretension that lives in me too. So, <laughs> all right. Anyway, I want to give you an exercise. This is something I did over the weekend. Maybe you'll find it helpful. I just did this for myself. And then I thought, hey, maybe you guys would find it useful. First, this is some a way of doing bhakti yoga in a sense, even though you're, it's not like a formal practice of bhakti, I think anyone can do this. And it's very much like what bhakti yoga is all about. First, you have to catch an appearance that speaks to you. It's a mind state. It's a mood. Uh, it's a feeling. It's a thought, you know, something that comes really strongly, you know, something that comes through. And then literally find a space after you catch it, 
maybe you can't do this right away. Maybe you have to do it later, but catch it. Remember what it feels like, what it looks like, whatever. And then later, lay on your back somewhere. I don't suggest a bed. I suggest a floor. But lay on your back and imagine that you are looking up at it as a passing cloud or that you're sitting on a hilltop watching it as a weather system is moving in. But find an unusual place, like lay down in your bathtub, empty, no, no water. Lay down in right outside your front door if it's not, you know, or inside your house, not if it's cold outside. F find a place that's weird and lay down in that space and look up, eyes open, eyes closed, doesn't matter. Look up at that thing, that thought, that feeling, that mood, whatever it is, especially the ones that come on very strongly. It doesn't could be positive. It could be negative. I'm not saying to, you know, this is not a form of, of therapy, fix negative emotions or something. You're not your bad thoughts. You're just going to look up at it and then fix it with some good thoughts. Nothing like that. You could catch a good thought. You could catch an enthusiasm. You could catch a charisma, whatever kind of spirit it is. Just note one that's strong. Lay down your back, on your back in a weird place, look up at it, ask two questions and give five to 10 minutes each of just meditating on, contemplating and listening to what responds after you ask these two questions. Who are you or what are you? More probably better is who are you? What might get a little metaphysical? So let's just say, who are you? I'd love to know you. Would you introduce yourself? Treat that presence, that thought, that emotion, like it's a being. Okay, so first and foremost, who are you, we'll say. Then let give space to respond and really listen, like you're really waiting for something to respond. And then two, ask, what do you love? What do you love? And then listen again. And then final step, try then to make something or some gesture, some creative act in dedication to what that thing loves. It could be very small, symbolic, a gesture, an act in dedication to what that thing loves. I'm going to give you an example of how this happened to me, what, how, how it worked out for me. So I noticed this weekend that I was feeling sad when I was, whenever I was in a particular room in our house, it's our basement, which is the, it's like, kids playroom, but it also doubles as kind of like a family room. And I just noticed that I'm always sad when I'm down here. I wonder why that is. And I thought that's Venus. That's this Venus is speaking to me right now. This is very much, you know, for me, it's, it's some, something about the room, the presence, like this is there, this is important. And I, I caught it. Okay. So then I sat down. Um, I laid down on the stairs in the family room. There's like these three little steps that go from like a slightly higher level down to a lower level. And I just laid on one of the steps. I don't know why I just did, but it felt afterwards. I realized it was important that it, it, it be not like a normal place where I do things that put me into like my normal ego state. Like I gotta get, I gotta find a space that's a little out of that. And it, that's what I reflected upon after the book. It's like, well, that was really cool that I actually just laid in this random place. So I lay down on one of the steps and I said, who are you? And I listened. I just sat and listened for a while. And I heard a few statements. There weren't many, but I heard a few statements. I heard 
a voice in my mind say, I am the feeling of being all dressed up with nowhere to go. I am the feeling of being all dressed up with nowhere to go. Then I heard, I am the birthday party that nobody arrived at. And then I had this feeling because I said, what are you as well? And it wasn't a literal voice. It was just this kind of understanding that there's like a, you know, there's genies of places. It's a pretty common view in all cultures all around the world. And this is like the spirit of the room. This is the genie of the room speaking. Not that it matters. Anyway, so I said, what do you love? And it said two things, and it took a while for these to come through and not for me to be fabricating answers in my head. And there's a difference, and you can tell if you sit long enough. At first, it said, I want warm light. I love warm light. It didn't say I want warm light. It actually said, I love warm light and company. <laughs> I just thought, that's funny. I don't ever spend time here. I don't spend time in this room. Neither does my wife. My kids do, but not in the family, like the kind of family room portion of the playroom. So I was like, huh. So I realized like that, just suddenly I realized, oh, I have this uh, lamp that I loved so much. It used to be in my old office. And that lamp is in storage in the little storage room in the basement. So I took it out and it's one of those Tiffany lamps. I don't know if you guys know those, but they have like beautiful, um, it's kind of like stained glass looking um, lampshade, kind of look old. So I took one of those out and I put it in the little living room area and I turned it on and I turned all the rest of the lights down, like the big lights. And it was weird. I could, it was just suddenly I was just like, that's what this room wants. That's what this room wanted. It just wanted a little like warm lamplight, needed a little ambiance. And then that evening I sat and I read and I just hung out after, you know, kids were in bed. I just spent leisurely time down there and the room felt different to me. I felt love, it, a simple it's not, not some grandiose state I'm talking about, just like a simple feeling. It felt a little better in there. The room felt a little happy. So this is like bhakti because of this. If I see the room as God, the act of listening and service to the room, because God is in all things, the simple act of listening. I, I don't remember who said this, but I heard this somewhere recently and I don't, I can't even remember, but they said that like pure attention um, is one of the rarest and most sacred, generous gifts that you can give someone just pure attention. Uh, you know, if we, this action that I went through is a product of my practice of bhakti. There's nothing else in my life that would have led me to doing that if it weren't for what I broadly call the practice of bhakti. Bhakti has a lot, you can just call it devotional life, a life of devotional consciousness. If I see the room as God and the act of listening and service to the room becomes service to God. God is in all things. I've listened. I've gotten to know the presence 
of this space, not as an impersonal space that I own or possess, but as a space that has a living presence. And instead of saying, I'm sad when I'm in this room, I say, I notice sadness in this room. I wonder what it is. So just a simple example. It doesn't have to be a room, you know, just start with anything that strikes you very strongly and consider that that's something that actually wants to talk to you. It's not a state that I had to analyze and fix, but a relational opening that invited me into deeper intimacy, care, and friendship with an environment. And the cosmos is just that. It's a living, breathing environment filled with beings. And the greatest spiritual goal of any of our lives is to care for it and cultivate intimacy, love, respect, relation with it. You know, in Bhakti, you actually have a separate room in your house that's dedicated to God <laughs> that you care and tend for, an altar room or a special room that's just for God. But informally, these kinds of practices lead to, in Bhakti, what we call the, uh, your bhajan. Your bhajan means like your devotional song. Your life becomes a devotional song. Some traditions, your life becomes a moving prayer a walking meditation, different ways of talking about the same thing. But I suspect that Venus retrograde in Capricorn's sign will ask us for a song. It, I, I, need, I need a little harmony in my soul. <laughs> I need a new song. Even the Psalms sing about this, right? The, the Psalms and the great poetry and love prayers to God. How long will I sing this song? You guys have heard that one before. And the desire for a new song is a way of saying that there's, you know, we need new relate, a new relational mode to enter our lives. It might be in a literal relationship, but don't think about it too literally, or the change you make will be just another feigned appearance. So um, I suspect again that this is what we have before us this month is to find our way into revisioning our relationship with ourselves, with others, with our environment, with images. Um, and that's going to appear maybe more specifically in some areas of life than others for us. And that can be very much dependent upon your individual birth chart. But I wanted to spend time with this this week to leave you something really strong, a strong impression of Venus, Saturn, and their dance uh, to accompany us for the rest of the lunar cycle. And um, also just where my own thoughts and you know meditations have led me recently. So I hope that it's helpful for all of you. I hope that you are off to a great start to your new year. Remember, Bhakti Wednesday will air this week on Wednesday. Otherwise, I am off from content creation this week as I'm fulfilling a whole bunch of Kickstarter rewards. So just this video for the new year as a focal point, I will be back to you guys next Monday um, and uh, fresh as ever, ready to go. If I didn't take a little break for myself right now to do this, you would just have a bunch of feigned appearances in, as content. So... <laughs> So at any rate, uh, have a great day today. I look forward to Bhakti Wednesday 